Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books, where we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs. And I'm your host and former computer engineer turned entrepreneur, Manny Laya. Well, hello, everyone. Today, I am super excited to welcome John Vorlove for his book, The Art of Selling. And the thing is, I have read John's books, other books of John's, which I love. I highly recommend. I've, I've, I feature them in my list of the top 50 books for entrepreneurs, both Build to Sell and Automatic Customer. I've recommended it to so many of my entrepreneur friends. So I'm excited, John, to finally get a chance to talk to you and pick your brain about something very profound. So thank you and welcome. Well, thanks for having me, man. It's good to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. So the art of selling. I want to give the people a framework and at least give the background of who you are, what you've done before we get into the art of selling. So you wrote two, two books prior to this, Built to Sell and The Automatic Customer. And uh, to me, both of them had a huge impact on as I was thinking about building my business and not only had, but they continue to have as and I continue to revisit them, continue to think about them, continue to think about how I'm building my business. So I make sure even if I never decide to sell the business, at least I'm building it the right way. So I have that structure and freedom. So tell us a little bit about your story, John, and how, what got you to this point today to write the, the Art of Selling? Yeah. I mean, I've been involved, I guess, in four companies that I've started and exited I wrote about sort of how to do that in Built to Sell, really focused on the, how do you build a valuable company? Whether you want to sell it or not, as you say, Manny, is kind of immaterial. It's, it's like, how do you build something that, that basically allows it to thrive without you personally giving you sort of the options? Uh, I followed it up with the automatic customer, which is really about creating recurring revenue, which is like accelerant for building the value of a company. And I also started doing this podcast, as you referenced, called Built to Sell Radio, where I interview a different entrepreneur, uh, people like Ryan Dice, who you and I know uh, mutually, and ask them sort of, how did they sell their company? What were the mistakes they made? What would they do over? And um, I started to realize that there was a small cohort of my, my, my interviews who seemed to punch well above their weight when it comes to selling. I'm reminded of Rob Walling. Have you ever had Rob on the show? No. Drip? Rob. Yeah, Rob started Drip. Yeah. So Rob started Drip. And, you know, it, 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 when we first got the, uh, the news about Drip's acquisition, I thought, oh, it's a, it's a little small. We, we generally try to do companies that are sort of two to 20 million in value. And, and his business was kind of small. It was like 12 employees. I was like, oh, maybe, maybe it's a little small. Let's do the interview anyways. So I get into the interview with Rob and he says, yeah, I've been building Drip for a while. It's a SaaS company, software as a service company. And, you know, we're about, you know, a dozen employees, a couple of million dollars in annual revenue. And he, and he stopped and, and, and I said, and, and what did you think it was worth? And he said, well, you know, we started to get, you know, some sniffs around, some interest in kind of somewhere in the nine to 12 times range. And I said, oh, that's amazing. Like nine to 12 times even I mean that's a that's a huge success, right? And and he's like, no, no, nine to twelve times revenue. <laughs> and I'm like, like what <laughs> for a two million dollar company? Like it's just like ridiculous. But I would put Rob in that in that small cohort of comp- of, of of entrepreneurs who seem to get just wildly different valuation numbers than the average business, and it just got me enthralled and curious. And so I decided to try to figure out what people like Rob and Ryan Dice do to punch above their weight. And that's what I put in the book. 
Yeah. So tell us just a little more about your story. Like sure. you lived the build to sell life in some ways. You had to design your business to be able to sell. Tell us, tell my entrepreneur friends who are listening, like what happened, what happened in your life that led you to selling your business and how did you go about doing that? And yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, the, the most recent sale was a, a market research business. I had a quantitative mm-hmm. market research business and uh, you know, I actually tried to create the business and I tried to build it um, the best way I knew how, but ultimately I, I, I went to an M&A professional and said, you know, like we built it up to, I think it was five or $6 million in revenue at the time. And we had clients like Google and Microsoft, like really blue chip clients. I said, what do you think it's worth? You know, thinking he was going to throw out some huge number. And he's like, well, let me ask you a couple of questions. And I said, sure. And he says, okay, so like you're in the quantitative market research business, right? And I'm like, yep. And he's like, so who does the selling? And I'm, I'm like, oh, we've got sales guys. And he's like, Really? And I'm like, yeah, I'm still involved in doing some of the selling. And and he said, okay, so check number Mm -hmm. two, who does the research? And I said, oh, well, you know, I still, I'm still involved a little bit in the research. And and he said, okay, let me get this straight. You you have a quantitative market research business. You're involved in the selling and you do the research. And, and, and he said, have I got that about right? And and I kind of copped and I said, yeah, I guess I'm still involved. And he said, okay, well, you don't have a business. There's nothing here I can sell. And it was like being told that, you know, the, my baby was the ugly one in the, in the maternity ward. Like it was brutal. And I mean, this goes back, this goes back 25 years, 20 years, like, like this is a long time ago, but I remember to this day, that conversation and how devastating. It felt like I had kind of gone on this train for years thinking I'd built something of value. I've got these great clients, blah, blah, blah. And he just in one fell swoop, just kind of knocked me down at the knees. And, and so I spent the better part of three years really trying to remake the business. And, you know, we, we totally transformed what we did into a subscription offering instead of a, of a quantitative market research business. We became more like a, a Bloomberg or a Thomson Reuters, et cetera. Um, we remade the sales team. We did, like, we just changed the entire business. Ultimately that business uh, was acquired by a public company in 2009. So, um, and, and so, yeah, I've, I've made all the mistakes that your listeners could possibly conceive of making and many, many, many more. So that was uh, part of why I wanted to write the book was to really uh, try to communicate some, some of the mistakes I'd made, frankly, and, mm-hmm. and show others how to avoid them. Yeah. By the way, for those of you who are listening to this part, uh, what you just talked about, uh, building the market research firm and you know changing it from uh, selling one-offs to subscription and all those things. That's something you cover in the automatic customer. Uh, so highly recommend if you're trying to build a subscription business, definitely check out that book because there's a lot of great insights on how you go about doing that or how anyone should go about doing that. So uh, with that said, let's talk about the art of selling a business. And uh, uh, I think towards the end of the book, you talk about some someone who was interviewing you who said, oh, so you are the jerk who wrote a book built to sell, right? Let's talk about that because that's like a really important distinction as entrepreneurs uh, we have to make. Like I always say, yes, you should do something that you're passionate about and you know, you should build a business that you care about. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that you should be uh, tagged to it for the rest of your lives. And mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I get a little bit nauseated with this whole idea of like built to last. I know it's a great book and I know Jim Collins is a, is a prolific author and he's done some amazing, amazing stuff. And I think it's just become so overused, that concept of creating vision and values. Look, I get it. It's important. And I think a lot of owners really do themselves a disservice by staying in their business too long. And I think that, you know, you can separate yourself personally, your tenure from running your company with your business itself and its need to continue on without you. So things like, you know, building to last, developing a vision statement, having a mission, having values, these are all important things to do. But I think we somehow sometimes start to think that because we have this 30-year BHAG and we've got this vision that lasts for decades in the future, that we personally have to fulfill that. And Mm. I, I don't think that's the case. In fact, and I think in many cases, we are much better served by starting a business where there's a premium placed on creativity and then letting someone else take a turn running it. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I'm reminded there's a story in the book uh, about a guy named Joey Redner. Joey built Cigar City Brewing, which is a, a, a brewery in Tampa, Florida and great, you know, great success story. But every time he sold out of brewing capacity. His company asked him to invest more. First of all, he borrowed money from his dad. Then he borrowed money from the SBA. And the third time he had to expand brewing capacity again, he said, and I asked him about it when I interviewed him, I said, like, what did that feel like? He said, I felt like I had just won five rounds in a row at the blackjack table. And the dealer said, now put all your chips in again. And let's deal again because he was being asked yet again to sign a personal guarantee. You know, go, and he said, "Enough, I'm done. I built a great business. I don't need to make it. I don't need to add another 10 million barrels of brewing capacity. I'm done." And he sold the company, and it was acquired by Oscar Blues, private equity back deal, and they've gone on to build the brand. Joey's put some money in his jeans. No harm, no foul. And I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of in wanting to start a business and not necessarily see it through for 30 years. In fact, I think some of the most miserable people I've met are the people who are stuck in a business that they've run for 20, 30 years and are just feeling, um, you know, hamstrung by it. Yeah. I mean, I think about, uh, I think about a lot of people who are great at starting, but they're not great at operation, like operating and they're not great at scaling. They're not great at the day-to-day uh, details and the mundaneness of, uh, you know, operations and selling, scaling, like what they can do when they're creative in their early phase of starting with an idea and making it happen. And there's a lot of entrepreneurs who will beat themselves up because they think, oh, I must go through all of these phases and I must keep growing the business and keep doing everything I need to do to uh, grow the business to eternity. So your bus- you, what you're talking about here is so profound because, it says, hey, it's okay to move on and it's okay to build something else because there is more to you than just trying to build that one business forever. Yeah, and- yesterday, I, yesterday I did a, an interview with a guy who just kind of reminded me of this point. He, he built a company called SBI, Sales Benchmark Index. It'll be out in a couple of weeks, uh, the episode. And, and I said, what would you do differently? He, I mean, he built an incredibly successful company. He built, he built a 30-employee consultancy with $30 million in revenue. So a million dollars per head sold it for $162 million. Nice. Like it, it, 
it's, it's, it was an incredible uh, um, exit. And I said, like, if you could do it all over again, what would you, what would you say? And he said, Oh, you know what? I would have sold way sooner. Mm. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You would have sold way sooner. You just sold for $162 million. Like how are you, like, that doesn't make any sense to me. And he said, no, I would have sold sooner, probably like after year five or six. And I'm like, but you would have left million, like tens of millions of dollars on the table. And he said, yeah, but I was done. I, you know, I, I, I was done. I was intellectually, I was, you know, it was grinding me down mm. and I should have, and he's gone on to start another company, Capital 54. And he's like, it, this was a stepping stone business for me. Mm-hmm. And I've heard it referred to as a, as a tricycle or uh, uh, a, uh, you know, what's the other uh, training wheels business, excuse me, where it's really just, the first one getting it out of your system, right? Getting a little bit of capital, getting your first rung on Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs, and then go starting another business. And I think some of the happiest, most successful entrepreneurs I've met are on this sort of five to 10 year loop where they start, they build it up a little bit, and then they exit and they move on. And they yeah. think of their, their entrepreneurial journey as this patchwork of businesses as opposed to sort of one 40 year journey. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, like, uh, as I was thinking about the book, as I was uh, listening to the book, one of the things that I felt was that a lot of this comes down to self-awareness, as in, do you know yourself well enough to know what it is that you should or are best suited to do in your entrepreneurial journey, in your life's ventures, or whatever you want to call it? Because some people are great at just grinding it out on one thing and just keep building it forever. But some people, as you said, they just need that. Like the guy we were just talking about, like he, he felt like he was just unnecessarily grinding. And that was, even though maybe it was financially a good outcome for him uh, in terms of a life lived, he may not have felt like it was a good outcome. So it's like that self-awareness changes the game quite a bit. Like I've been through so many different uh, variations of myself. I used to be a physics major. I studied physics. Then I studied electrical and computer engineering. Then I went to a career where I was a software engineer. Then I went to a career where I was managing billion dollar cell phone projects and now I have started this business. And all of these different things happened because I just found new passions in my life that I was getting excited about as I was going through those journeys. And I, I'm glad I didn't just stick to physics back when I was like, I started at 18 as a physicist, but you know, I graduated as a physicist. You're way cooler time. now, Manny. <laughs> <laughs> but that's you know, right. the, What's that? No, that's part of the journey of an entrepreneur in some ways, yeah, uh, yeah. as you were talking about and, you know, and selling. I think it's, un- it's unique. It's one of the unique uh, benefits of entrepreneurship that, you know, God knows we have a lot of downsides, right? A life of entrepreneurship. I don't need to regale you with all the not like the nonsense associated with running a company, but there, you know, there's a ton, right? And, and here we are recording this in January, 2021, where we just come through one of the most brutal years of, of, of the business life of any business owner. And, and yet one of the, the very rare unique benefits of choosing a career in entrepreneurship is you can take a step off the career ladder. And what I mean by that is if you go to work at Procter and Gamble or Ford or Apple, you're on a trajectory, right? You're on a career ladder and one step goes to the next, goes to the next. You don't have the luxury of, of, of stepping off for a couple of years and doing another project. You're the life, the half-life of your career will, 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 
will atrophy quickly. Yet as entrepreneurs, we can think about life in these kind of chunks, right? Like I'm going to start a business. I'm going to grow it for a little while. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to take a couple of years off. I'm going to do the same. I'm going to, I wrote a blog post years ago called Life in 10-Year Chunks. And mm-hmm. basically the premise was start a business, grow it for 10 years, exit, take some time off, start, exit. You know, And that was the premise because I think it's one of the luxuries of being an entrepreneur. And, uh, and God knows there are a lot of downsides, but that would be one of the upsides. Yeah, yeah. In the book, you talk about something really profound, which is the secret to a happy exit, uh, which is all about getting clear on the reason, what's driving your reason to sell a business. And as I was reading it, as I was listening to it, I, I, it made it very clear, like a lot of my friends who had exited their businesses and then they were miserable after that. So you talk about two different things, right? The pull factor and the push factor. Let's talk a little bit about that because this is so easy or this is so easy to get wrong because I know people who literally they did it because it's hard. They did it for money only to find out that they were miserable after having it done, having done it for money. Yeah. The data, the data on this is clear. When we analyze it, three quarters of business owners just one year after selling end up regretting their decision to sell. Wow. That blows my mind. First of all, the, the idea that three quarters of owners are sad about their decision to sell is an indictment of sort of all of us as entrepreneurs not really doing the heavy lifting in advance to think about what it is that we are striving for and what it is that will make us happy. And so we looked at what are the things that cause business owners to regret their decision to sell their company. One of them is leaving money on the table, looking back at the end and saying, I didn't negotiate effectively, which the whole book is about the idea of punching above your weight. So I think that allays one concern. The second though, and the one that you referenced is that for many business owners that are all push, no pull, meaning push factors are the things that frustrate you about your company, government, uh, regulations, employees, you know, all the stuff that's frustrating. Those are all push factors and all of us have those. But if you're all push and no pull, it, it's a recipe for disaster. What you really want are pull factors. Pull factors are things you're excited to go do. The guy I was just talking about, um, sales benchmark index, he wanted to start another company. He was really passionate about doing that. And so he sold his business and never looked back. Doesn't have an ounce of regret. Um, but he had something else to go do. And so that's the secret. I, I, uh, I remember there's an interview. It's actually one of, I think it's the single most popular interview we've ever done at Built Cell Radio. It was with a guy named Sean Oshman. And he built a little company, two to $3 million in revenue when he decided that he wanted to live life on a sailboat. And he was in Denver, Colorado, like landlocked, right? So he had to sell his company. And he sold it for around two to three times profit. So not a huge spectacular, not like Rob Walling where he's entertaining offers of, you know, like nine to 12 times top line revenue. He's two to three times profit. So an average, but I talked to Sean after the sale and I said, sort of like, what's up? And he's, and, and he's like, I've got a down payment on my boat. I'm getting ready to, you know, my girlfriend and I are, are leaving happy as a clam. Mm-hmm. Happy as a clam with his decision to sell, even though on paper it was a rather average sale. Mm-hmm. That I think is is emblematic of what one of the secrets to a happy exit is 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 having something you're really excited to go do next, mm-hmm. and um, and making sure you don't leave money on the table as a result. Yeah, I think you said something very profound there, which is have, knowing what you want to do next. Because if you don't, then it can feel like 
the end, it can feel like retirement in some ways, which when you're young is, uh, it almost feels like you've got nothing. Your life has ended in some ways and you've got nothing more to do with your life. And that's a very dangerous path for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of trite advice when you think about like every retirement, you know, uh, Every article that's ever written about retirement says, have some hobbies in retirement to make sure you don't, you're not bored. Like, I get it. But just amplify that by about 100 when it comes to entrepreneurs. Like, think about the way we're wired, right? Action-oriented, uh, seeking new, new things, desiring to, like, solve problems. Like, all of that wiring, which is so sort of running through our veins, like, works against us when we're, quote, unquote, retired, <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't advocate retirement for anybody uh, listening to this. I do, however, advocate for taking what you've created, harvesting the value, and going to apply those same skills of creativity and problem solving and entrepreneurialism to a new challenge. Mm-hmm. I think it's where we feel most energetic, most energized. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about an idea in the book, or, or it was a less, you were sitting in some class, I'm assuming, I don't know if it was a college class or MBA class or where you were precisely what that class was. They wouldn't let me near an MBA class, Manny. (laughs) (laughs) It was some sort of class where the professor or the guy who was teaching was talking about, you make, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars when you create or when you focus on selling a product, but you, but you make multiples more when you focus on selling a business and you should focus on selling your business as in maybe focus quote unquote on selling your business or focus on designing your business to be able to sell it. Maybe that would be more of what I took away from it. Uh, But yeah, let's talk about that because that was probably one of my most profound uh, moments in the book as I was listening to it, because as I, as I thought about it, it suddenly you start to think of a different lever in your business, like yes, sales and marketing are such an important part of growing your business, but this is a completely different game uh, that some people are playing while others are just playing the game of sales and marketing. Yeah, I think you're referring to uh, the, the entrepreneurial master's program. So I was, it used to be called Birthing a Giant's pretentious name, but oh, it's now Vern. called the entrepreneur. Yeah, the Vern, Vern's program called okay. the entrepreneurial master's program. It's run by EO now. Mm-hmm. In any event, it was uh, a great experience for me. This goes back again, I'm embarrassed to tell you, almost 20 years, where I was invited to this, or I, I was a, an attendee or a participant in this program called Birthing of Giants. And it was held at MIT's executive campus. And and so you go into this room and it's this beautiful mahogany, you know, everywhere building. And then you go into the amphitheater and the amphitheater is like, as the name suggests, it's got the stage seating and there's an entrepreneur comes down and pontificates and explains the way the world works. Just 60 of us in the room. So very small, intimate experience. And this guy comes in and he says, uh, okay, great. So let me just get a show of hands. How many of you guys are involved in selling and marketing your products, right? Of course, every one of us as entrepreneurs raised our hands and said, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm, I'm involved in sales marketing. And he said, yeah. Yeah. You've got the right skills. You're selling the wrong product. And he went on to admonish us by saying, you've got all of the right talent, but you're selling your product or service and you should be applying those same sales and marketing skills to your company. Hire salespeople to sell your product. Your job as an entrepreneur is to be selling your company. And he he wasn't suggesting that we all 
sell our companies tomorrow, but he was saying that your whole lens should be as an entrepreneur to apply all of those sales and marketing resources that you hold in your like your your sales and marketing chops and and direct those to selling your company, getting investors, getting strategic partners, talking to acquirers, and eventually down the road you will ultimately sell your company. And it was like one of those moments where I was just in the audience. And as you said in your setup for this question, it was like all of a sudden I felt like 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 an amateur who had just been given a, a taste of a professional game. You know, when like young rookies are playing a game and they're, and they're just like, what was it like out there in your first game? And they're like, I can't believe how fast it is. And it was just like a totally another level that they never imagined being able to play at. This was what it was like for me. I was like, oh my gosh, I've been playing an amateur's game and there's a whole other level that there's an, another type of way to think about business that I didn't even know existed. Yeah. I mean, I think you said it, or maybe I interpreted it this way. I'm not sure. But uh, I remember thinking entrepreneurs earn the most when they design their business and not necessarily when they're thinking about selling a new product or service. When you're designing the business the right way uh, so that you are able to sell it the right way and uh, make the most. Maybe you, again, maybe you decide to sell it or not sell it, but the designing part, like thinking about being able to sell is a crucial element of it. Because one of the things that we haven't talked about yet is the idea that if you do end up, maybe you don't sell a business, maybe it never happens. But if you make sure you build your business that is sellable, as in you built it to sell, as you talk about in your other book, then you will always have the opportunity to take that time to have that freedom. Basically, you're able to build freedom into your life, into your business from, from the business so you can do other things, which you would never have if you were just tied to the business, coupled to the business, and you were just involved with every little intricate detail of the business. Absolutely right. I mean, I think freedom is is the the seam that laces all entrepreneurs together. It's the, it's the common denominator, whether you run a lifestyle business or you're scaling a SaaS company, I think the desire for freedom, financial freedom, but much more than financial freedom, freedom to do what you want with whom you want, where you want is the ultimate aspiration. And, and sometimes that's possible through running a company. I unfortunately think though, a lot of times it's an illusion. It's a bit of a mirage. The idea is that we want freedom, but when we get into running a company, especially when it's, you know, it starts to be five, 10, 15, 20 employees, all of a sudden you're no longer free anymore. You're feeling very, you can become feeling uh, very beholden to and trapped by your company. And that's, you know, that's one of the, I mean, it's kind of like the marketing on the inside cover of this new book. It's like you started your business for freedom do you feel free right now? If not, maybe what you need to do is start to monetize and, and harvest, uh, like a farmer would harvest a bumper crop, harvest what you've built. Because that's really the true sense of freedom you get when, you've, when, you've, when you're able to basically uh, monetize what you've created. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things you talk about when we talk about selling the business, there are three different kinds of acquirers, the individual investor, the private equity group, and the strategic investor. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, depending on the size of the business, different kinds of acquirers come into play. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that and 
talk about it? Yeah, for sure. So most small businesses, so less than say a couple of million dollars in annual revenue are, are most likely going to be acquired by an individual and investor. And an individual investor usually uses uh, an SBA loan in the United States. Uh, they also ask the entrepreneur to self-finance some of the sales. So they usually have to take a note where you lend a little bit of money to the acquirer to buy your company. The, and, the, and they generally are the lowest valuation as a multiple of you know what brokers call SDE or it's a form of profit. The second type is private equity groups. And private equity groups are, uh, are very active right now buying companies. They generally look for companies with at least a million dollars of EBITDA, a million dollars of profit. Not always, but generally that's kind of a minimum threshold. And their business model is different. They, what they do is they buy usually a percentage of your business, oftentimes 60, 70%, oftentimes a controlling share but here's what they do. They try to get you to roll some of your equity into a new entity that they fund and finance and ask you to run. Because private equity companies don't generally have management. They want you to stick around. And so the way they do that is they get you to carry 30, 40% of your equity into a new entity. So when it works, you put some money in your jeans and you keep your job. And there's what they call, it's an overused term, a second bite of an apple, which is basically you sell the second tranche of your equity when the private equity group exits. Mm. The problem, and this became very clear when I interviewed Ryan Moran recently, is that when you roll that equity into a new entity, generally speaking, you no longer control the business you run. You're a minority shareholder and president, but you're not really driving... And Ryan told me when he sold his company, it, it, he built it up and sold it for, on paper, I think $18 million. That was the valuation they put on it, he and his partner. However, he only got 60% of his money up front and rolled 40% into the new entity, only to find the private equity company had their own vision of how to run their business. They put new management in place months later with all the debt the private equity company had taken on. Remember, that's the company has to pay that back. That new entity went bankrupt. Mm. And Ryan's 40% that he left in the company went to zero. Mm. That's the danger of that sort of deal when you're the minority shareholder. So it's a risk. You're basically shouldering risk. It can work out. And oftentimes it doesn't. And then the third kind of acquirer is what are, what's known as a strategic acquirer. And a strategic acquirer is an organization where your company is worth more in their hands than it is in your hands. And that's why oftentimes strategic acquisitions garner the, the very highest valuations. And with strategic acquisitions, it's usually going to be larger businesses in some ways, and they're looking for you. They aren't really looking to grow your business. They are looking to get your absorb whatever assets they want from your business to grow their business. That's their that's the bottom line thereafter. So in some ways, the whole, whole idea of art of selling to a strategic group comes down to you being able to understand what's in it for them and so that you can position everything the right way as you talk about it. So uh, I think there are a couple of examples that I, I really enjoyed in the book. Uh, one was what, Embonet? Sorry, I was mm -hmm. listening to the book, so I don't really know, like I don't <laughs> know how they were written, but Embonet were like, how they had to restructure what they were trying to sell in order to get a great equity or a great return. Do you want to talk about that? 
Yeah, Embinet really focused on repositioning their business in into an industry that was growing very quickly and and enjoyed a better multiple because they they positioned themselves as part of the e-learning industry. So that was it was it was part of the art of selling is this sort of notion of positioning. Um, Another example of a strategic acquisition might be Stephanie Breedlove's sale to Care.com. So Breedlove was running a, a small payroll company. They had $9 million of revenue. They had a unique niche though. What they did was do, did payroll for parents who had a nanny to pay. And so it was a niche that nobody really cared about in the payroll space, but for Breedlove, it was a nice little business, $9 million of revenue basically doing payroll for parents who had a nanny to pay. They had about 10,000 customers. And Breedlove had run the business very successfully for about 25 years. And she decided to sell. And she looked out in the landscape. And this is what I would recommend all your listeners to do is say, who, who out there, for whom out there would my business be worth more in their hands hmm. than it is in my hands? And she looked out and saw care.com. So care.com is like the Angie's list of care providers, right? You plug in your zip code and it'll give you a, a babysitter you can, you can have your kids watch by. And she, had, she looked them up and they had 7 million subscribers. These are all people who have nannies to pay effectively or babysitters to pay. And she said, okay, if I sell my company to these guys and, and just 1% of the 7 million subscribers buy my payroll service, that's 70,000 customers. Well, at the time, she had just 10,000 customers. Effectively, she was making the case to care.com that if, if they just bought her company and only 1% of their subscribers bought her service, that would be a business seven times the size of her company. Yeah, and, and that is, yeah. Please keep going. Yeah, no, I'll just finish the, 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 the kind of punchline of the story. So the original offer was, was uh, if you can believe it, $40 million. The original offer that Breedlove got for her business uh, from care.com was $40 million. And her and revenue was $9 million? Yeah, her revenue was $9 so, million. So was the offer based on, uh, was it a multiple of revenue? Well, yeah, I don't know whether Care actually did the multiple on EBITDA or multiple on revenue, but we can we can say with confidence the original offer was forty, and it was a nine million dollar company, which on the surface is ridiculous. I mean, it's a massive, massive multiple. But Breedlove went back and said, "No, no, guys, look, do the math. If one percent, that's a seven, that's a company seven times the size of my business today. If two percent, and she gave him the spreadsheet, buy my that's a company fourteen times the size." Hmm. Anyway, she got them to up their offer from 40 million to 54 million for a $9 million company. It's like, again, it's, this is what I mean by punching above your weight. There's no way you should be able to sell a $9 million company for $54 million. So like on paper, there's no valuation consultant that would ever say that's possible. Yet somehow by, by stitching this narrative she was able to do it. And that's what I mean by, well, first of all, it's a strategic acquisition as well as she had more art than science to it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And that's, I think, quite a, quite a lot of different levers at play here. One is just the fact that you need a strategic acquirer to be able to pull off a deal like that. But beyond that, you also need to be thinking, you need to put yourself in the shoes of the, the the buyer to be able to pull up. It's almost like you're going back to the basics of sales and marketing. You have to put yourself in the shoes of the person who's about to buy a product and understand what it is you can do or this product will do for them beyond your own personal reasons for what it will do for you. It's such a good point. And, 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 and again, we go back to that 
program at MIT, Endocon House in that amphitheater, everyone listening to this is an entrepreneur. And by definition, I would imagine that every one of you are the key rainmaker for their company. You're the best salesperson in your company. You're probably the best marketer in your company. You've got all the right skills to pull this off. You just have to kind of direct that skill set into a different direction. In other words, investing those same skills in, in, in marketing and selling your company as opposed to your product. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's one more idea I want to talk about, which was, uh, which is fascinating. You said the price, I'll set the terms. Mm-hmm. And that oh. sounds, uh, it's, it's great because it's, it gives you a sense of clarity. I was having this fun discussion with one of my friends uh, just last Friday, because I was thinking of investing in uh, a business. And he was on the other end of the spectrum in the sense he had someone else who was approaching him to invest in his business. And we were both on like what I was trying to do with the other business, he was having done to his business. And we were both playing that like back and forth role of, okay, what if I did this to you? He's like, no, that wouldn't work. And what if I did this to you? And that wouldn't work. And finally, as we were going through this whole drama, what we realized, what we finally came to kind of the conclusion was, we said the, you said the price and I said the terms because finally that's the only way we could fit everything together. Everything else was just like, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. And finally, <laughs> that's how we made it all work. So it was fascinating. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think the best advice I can offer anyone trying to sell their company, again, I would give you the opposite advice if you're trying to buy a company, but if you're trying to sell a company, I would, I would never divorce her or try to decouple terms from price. Mm. They're always negotiated in one basket. And again, an effective negotiator working for the other side would try to separate them and say, okay, Manny, let's agree to evaluation, right? And, and then let's agree to the earnout, and then let's agree to the escrow. And then let's agree. They would, they would sort of separate everything out. Whereas I think the, the most effective way to think about selling a business is you can't divorce or decouple terms from price. They are, they're inextricably linked. And, and so you want to make sure that you, that you, that you negotiate those again, as a seller, I think you did the very right thing as a buyer of a business to, to, but as a seller of a business, I think you want to combine them because they are very much intertwined. I'm reminded of a story of Sonny Vanderbeck. So Sonny built a company, a tremendous business um, where he ultimately uh, sold and unfortunately took equity in the buying company. And so he liked their valuation, but instead of getting cash, he got a, an equity stake in their business. And within about two years, the business that he was acquired by went bankrupt. And he had walked away from, again, I'm going by memory, but originally he had an offer of of close to a billion dollars for his company, like with a B. Ultimately, he sold for hundreds of millions of stock in an acquiring company and that stock itself went to zero. And so even though he liked the valuation, the terms were not cash, but stock. And so ultimately he, he was able to, to, to buy the assets back, went and flipped them and sold them again and made, you know, did very, very well. But there was a period where it looked like he had really uh, had, you know, had a catastrophic mistake. So I just, I think you've got to combine both terms and price as in, as the seller when negotiating. 
So you're constantly like, as you said, when you were working with uh, professional negotiators, you're making sure that they don't decouple those things as they would want to do. You're saying, okay, well, hang on. So I'm going to bring this and this and this rather than letting them separate those out because as soon as they separate it out, you are left, you kind of uh, uh, left with fewer ter- terms to work with. Yeah, I mean, like, look, let's let's just use an, another example. I mean, Rod Drury, another 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 story in the book, sold a company uh, Aftermail for thirty five million dollars, which sounds like an incredible exit for a, a two year old company, which it was at the time. But if you get underneath the deal, as Rod told me, he sold it for fifteen million dollars cash up front and twenty million dollars on an earnout. Well, the $20 million never happened because nine months after being acquired, he left because he couldn't stand that, you know, he, he was an entrepreneur. He wasn't a corporate guy, right? And so the $35 million number sounds amazing and it is amazing. However, when you peel back the layers, um, the, the actual deal was quite different. So I just, I just encourage everybody that, that, uh, that you can't decouple those if, if you're the seller, you want to make sure you, you keep those in one uh, in one negotiation. Yeah. And one of the things you talk about is the Arnold versus the flame out, which is exactly, sounds like what happened to uh, Rob here, Rod, Rob. Um, yeah, sorry. Rod. Yeah. Rod. Yeah, okay. uh, and uh, this is very, very typical where you are, you have a certain, you assume you'll get there or not, but in so many different cases, you're talking of Ryan Moran and so many other people, you, it's just not an Arnold anymore. It turns out to be a flame out for some reason or another. So that's another big uh, thing to worry about when you're selling. Well, <laughs> we can go on and on talking about so many different uh, concepts from this book. So that's why I recommend everyone should get the book. And And I think this is how I think about it. Even if you never plan to sell your business, you actually need to know what you're building towards. And even if you never plan to sell, you just don't know how life will like how life will play out, what kind of cards you will be dealt and what will happen as a result. So this is a book that will expose you to what's possible for your business. And then you can choose to take that path or not take that path, but don't stay ignorant of what you should be thinking about for your business. So that's, that's how I think of this book. Like every entrepreneur should be reading the book. That's very kind of you say, man. I, I, well, I tend to agree, but <laughs> I'm somewhat biased. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but that said, uh, I think I just wanted to say thank you very much, John. Uh, it's been a lot of fun talking to you about different aspects of building and selling a business. I would love to have you back some more, talk about some of your other great books, um, which uh, I know if currently we're talking about the book that. Um, you just launched a few weeks ago or a week ago or two weeks ago. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The, uh, the book launched last week. Uh, so you can get all the details of built to sell.com. And uh, that's where you can learn about the, the first book, uh, the automatic customer, as well as the new book, the art of selling your business. And uh, make sure to tune into John's podcast because that is a great podcast, um, Build to Sell Radio. Uh, I listen to it. I really love it. Uh, always looking for the new episodes. So. Oh, great. Thanks, yeah. man. I appreciate that. Yeah. All right, John. Uh, well, well, thank you very much for being here today, sharing your wisdom, and uh, hopefully I'll see you soon. Thanks, Manny. Thank you.